So, let's begin. Main man. Main man. Main man. Main man. Main man. Something for everybody, and everybody for something. All the people that were working for Main Man were unusual. We were loud, ugly Americans, basically. Hello, welcome to episode four in our series that takes a behind-the-scenes look at the hedonism and excess that was synonymous with rock and roll in the 60s and 70s through the archives of Main Man. He didn't want David to worry about anything like rent. He had to live in a nice place. He had to be surrounded by creative people because Tony believed that he was a star and that that's what was necessary to keep him focused. Main Man was a rights management organization formed by entrepreneur and empresario Tony DeFries that helped to develop the careers of artists including Iggy Pop, Lou Reed, Mick Ronson, Mott the Hoople, Ian Hunter, Mick Ralphs, Dana Gillespie, Amanda Lear, John Mellencamp and David Bowie. It was all tourists, especially in the summer. It was touristy and all these Swedish girls were flocking to London to come and get an R&B star. So he grew your hair really long and hoped that they recognised you as Keith Ralph, in my case. Uh, Keith Ralph, I thought. I made a better Keith Ralph than a Brian Jones. In this episode, we're at home in London with Dana Gillespie, who met David very early on in his career and became one of the original main man team that moved to New York City in 1972. Everyone had moved to America. I was the last one from Main Man to actually go because I had to finish up all my commitments. Nobody can imagine what it was like the way Main Man stormed into New York. I think the address was 45 Park Avenue. It was Park Avenue. I can't remember the number. How weird. And, you know, there were T-shirts, there were stickers, there were posters, there were badges. He did it with such style. And all the people that were working for Main Man were unusual. Bowie had got very excited about Andy Warhol's show called Pork, which had Tony Zanetta, Tony Ingrassia, I think, directed it, Cherry Vanilla. There was Jamie Andrews, Lee Black Childers. I mean, some of them, of course, aren't alive anymore, but... This show was wild. It came to England and Bowie made quite sure. He said, we all have to go and see it. So we all went to see it. And David in any way bonded with them. DeFries liked them very much. And suddenly he offered them a job as working for Main Man because, I mean, then they were going to be out-of-work actors from New York. And acting is in any way a dodgy profession. I mean, Vanilla, I love Cherry Vanilla. Vanilla always said... Um, you know, there she was being sent in as the PR woman into offices to talk to head of, I don't know, some mega thing in, let's say, RCA. They'd never seen anything like it. I mean, she had scarlet hair, unheard of. Now it's normal. And some cherries tattooed on her chest here, I mean, above the shirt line. So she'd swan in and she looked wild and amazing. All of the people that worked for Main Men were not normal in a way, <laughs> in every sense. So the offices were great. It was filled with people, loads of people on the payroll. I mean, somebody had to be paying these bills. Nobody questioned why. I certainly didn't. At this point, David had anyway done Hunky Dory, Man Who Sold the World, then Pin Ups was done in the chateau with me and Angie flying in and out to sort of see what was going on. 
in between me working, of course. I cannot imagine how much it costs to rent almost ad infinitum Trident Studios, any musicians you wanted you got. The guys that were either working with Bowie then I had, like Rick Waitman on keyboards, Bobby Keys, who was then the sax player for the Stones. You know, we had great times and we were in Trident. I mean, all that is expensive. All of it sorted by De Vries. We had first-class tickets to go anywhere, plus with our assistants. Bills were all paid. We didn't have to think about anything. And it wasn't just Bowie and I. De Vries had an interest in John Mellencamp. Stevie Wonder came to town. Maybe he was sort of talk, had talks there. He was always doing other stuff. And, of course, then there was Lou Reed and Iggy Pop. We had licence to go wild. I mean, we were young, great-looking, all of us, the whole main man team, sometimes out of our heads, having a wild time with De Vries calmly, because he never got agitated. He said that's not in his remit to get agitated. I think he'd had very bad asthma as a child and was in hospital for a long time, so nobody ever told him not to do something. So if he wanted to do something, he did it, but you never saw him agitated or angry. He kind of would sway from side to side and kind of work things out. But we'd be forever, all of us going out for dinner somewhere, bills, bills everywhere, left, right and centre, all picked up and paid for. Angie going out shopping for Britain, getting clothes for David, clothes for me, dress designers were called for. Angie got me into the most outrageous clothes ever. There's this one lioness session that Terry O'Neill took where I'm bursting out of a gold leather corsety thing with gold flouncy things and was on the cover of sort of some ghastly magazines called Titbits and there was another one called Parade. You don't really want to know about them. It, that was the era then. And because I was big busted, I was prime target for all these things. But what I'm saying is that everything was paid for and nobody had to worry. And that was incredible. De Vries gave a party for me. It is now called the, I don't know what it's called. Now. It was the Hyde Park Hotel, the Mandarin. And I mean, he gave these fantastic parties, not just a little party. It was an event. You know, your average manager wasn't doing that. I mean, when I look back at other managers like Andrew Oldham, who had the Stones, or Alan Klein, who I was always very fond of, who took on the Beatles, actually, but none of them had created a mystique with the company itself. They themselves might have been wild and wacky, and I knew them both very well. And there were others like Peter Grant, but he also went over the top as well. But they were just managers managing maybe the one act or one of really old friend Steve O'Rourke, he had Pink Floyd. They had this act, but Main Man actually had an image, which was more than any other management company had. You know, the joy of having, when you go to a gig, somebody's carrying your guitar, things were taken care of, transport was sorted. You know what a nightmare it is when you don't have somebody looking after these things and you're a sort of an artist that's still trying to make it. He took the shit out of you know, the bad things that artists don't want to think about. He kind of ironed out all the wrinkles so we could have smooth sailing. So people are interested in the main man story because Bowie never could have made it as big, I don't think. He would have made it in some level because in a way he had made it just by doing The Laughing Gnome, for goodness sake, or writing Space Oddity. 
you know, if you've got some talent, it's going to come out anyway. It just depends on how big a splash you're going to make in the pond. And it was this thing of Dufresne saying, we've all got to move to America. Your average... British manager was not thinking like that. They might be thinking, oh, it'd be great if we could have a hit in America. But to walk in and pick up the telephone and DeFries had meetings with mega names in the business, having come from people probably thinking, who the hell is this guy from England? And, you know, David wasn't loved the moment he landed in America. He still had to fight for his identity. And, you know, somebody rushing around looking a bit kind of over the top or maybe his Ziggy Stardust outfits. It wasn't an instant hit in America, but because of DeFries's perseverance, it became something to be cherished. Although there was a small main man office here, which sometimes I'd go into, it was in Gunter Grove, just off the Fulham Road, very trendy, fabulous place with beams, a sort of studio apartment, really cool place. Park Avenue was amazing. The offices are great. There's always things happening. I stayed for really quite a while with David and Ange, and by this time the baby, still Zoe, was there with Marion, the nanny, in the Sherry Netherlands Hotel in New York. Costs a fortune. It's like staying in Claridge's here. David wanted a grand piano. A grand piano was duly bought in. Anything he wanted, he had. And there'd be nights when he'd be out on the town, or the town would be out of it back at the hotel, or... Mick Jagger, who was staying in the plaza, would come over and we'd have pretty wild up-all-night nights, as one did in those days. And then somehow Angie wanted her own place. David, I don't know what he wanted, where he was just out doing his thing. Basically, the two of us just wanted to be in studios writing, but they got me an apartment on 58th Street between 2nd and 3rd. And I was there always with my then boyfriend, an antique dealer called Leslie Spitz. So we were in this place with my bass player who was from England and apparently the day before I moved in, Iggy Pop and a guy called, well he was then called Wayne County but he turned into Jane County, had been staying there and the place had been a tip so it had to be cleaned up but it was great. There I was right down the road from Bloomingdale's which is like being around the corner from Harrods. I wanted something from Bloomingdale's. I'd go down where there with a card, buy it. Everything was paid for. I mean, we literally had three to four years, Bowie and I, of just expense beyond belief. And not just hanging out money and things, plus our personal assistance. By this time, I was already signed to RCA as well and had already done my second album for them, for Main Man, which was called Ain't Gonna Play No Second Fiddle. I chose to record it in England because I've always liked Island Studios and all the people I listened to, like Little Feet or Bob Marley, they were all kind of recording there, so I wanted to work with the guys that I knew there. So I had a really great English band. But David was very much more taken than me with America, although I lived there in this flat for two years. But I was commuting as well, because I still had either some film commitments. I did some strange films, these kind of, <laughs> anyway, strange films, as David did eventually, because I did a film called Bad Timing, directed by Nick Rogue, and of course he did Man Who Fell to Earth. So we were still had parallel existences, but the moment... I got my own flat in New York. I saw much less of him. But occasionally, if I was 
had some gigs with by De Vries had said you know it is a bit of an over the top expense to keep English musicians in America there are great musicians here so RCA let me use their studios to audition people I had one of the greatest drummers in the world called Simon Phillips he was in my band in fact I took him with me from Jesus Christ Superstar. He was only 16. <laughs> the troubles to kind of get a 16-year-old boy to come to America where they don't let you in a bar till you're 21, but we did gigs with him. He was great. He was in the band for about a year. And again, he's a very good example. DeFries said to Simon Phillips, who then went on to play with Toto and The Who and just everyone, what do you want? He's, and he said, I want an Octoplus. Now, that was one of the most expensive drum kits you could get, eight drums. DeFries said, no problem. Everything that we wanted, we had. And the same went for Bowie too. There's no way... No matter how many gold albums Bowie had had, that he could have covered the costs of what De Vries had gone through to have such an image on Park Avenue with all these people going out and all fighting for the same cause, which was to make Bowie huge. And I particularly saw it much later in the Diamond Dogs show because... I mean, of course, it was quite difficult on Bowie then. It was I seem to remember it was an 80-city tour, and I think he did 80 gigs, and he didn't sleep a lot of the nights. No need to go into why on that. And he wouldn't fly either, because he was going through his fear of flying phase, so he would have to go in the big wheels. The band could fly the next day, but he'd be travelling overnight. I did a couple of those trips with him, with him just sort of sitting up. He didn't really sleep then, and he had got very thin. But all of this was going on and still De Vries was running the ship and taking care of things. De Vries, Bowie, Angie, me and then Rono until David went to America. We were like a really close-knit family. I loved every member of this family. Bowie and De Vries were so close. Anything he wanted, he had. Danny Gillespie talking about the early main man years when David was enjoying incredible artistic freedom and commercial success. In the next episode, we'll meet the man who was the driving force behind the main man organization, Tony DeFries, who'll explain his strategy that transformed not just the careers of the artists he represented, but also the business of rock and roll. Please hit subscribe to make sure the next episode arrives via your chosen podcast provider. And you can also check out the other episodes in this series. And the Main Man website has an ever-growing archive of amazing memorabilia, including never-before-seen photographs taken during several of the adventures that Dana described in this episode. I'm Des Shaw, and this is a Zinc Media MM Tech production. Thanks for listening.